episode 217 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Friday, 14th of June, 2019. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Colton Reed, and welcome to the second of two shows featuring interviews recorded at the UITP Global Public Transport Summit in Stockholm, Sweden. The first show majored on bike share. This second episode is more wide-ranging and features interviews with transport scientist Giovanni Cercella of the University of California at Davis and best-selling author Steve Martin, a behavioural scientist. For the past couple of years, Steve has been working with multinational public transport operator Transdev on a behavioural science unit. Also on the show, briefly, is Transdev's Marielle Villamo. We were all sat in the press room at the UITP Global Public Transport Summit before Steve gave a talk at one session and also gave a presentation at the conference's lavish closing ceremony. Outside the conference halls, delegates could choose to be taken to the adjoining rail station in an autonomous pod. I tweeted a video of myself stepping in front of that driverless vehicle. I have permission to do that, but out in the real world, that kind of intervention would be considered by some as vandalism. And I explored that concept with my first guest. My name is Giovanni Circella, and I am the director of the Three Revolutions of Fusion Mobility Program at UC Davis. The Three Revolutions Fusion Mobility Program is a research and policy program that focuses on the impacts that new technologies are having in the transportation sector, in particular what we call the Three Revolutions, Share Mobility, Vehicle Automation and Electrification, and how they are changing the way we travel, in particular the impacts on travel demand and travel behavior choices in this time of big changes and everything is evolving very quickly in the transportation sector. So I can go outside mm-hmm. and I can get a taxi. I can use my app to, to call for a taxi. I get in that taxi, I get taken somewhere. Um, that's an autonomous vehicle. I haven't driven that, that car. So the technology, the revolution you're talking about there how much of a revolution is it, given the fact that I've been able to, to call a cab to be taken somewhere in a, an autonomous vehicle for the whole uh, the time that cars have been available? So why, why is it a revolution? What you just pointed out, uh, it's a typical analogy between the ride-hailing model, Uber or Lyft in the American market, uh, and autonomy in vehicle automation. Um, this is probably the closest thing that we have today to robotaxis or to shared autonomous vehicles. And it's certainly a very good analogy to think about how fleet will operate in the future. Uh, there are profound differences though in the way cars are designed today because uh, nowadays ride-hailing companies that still operate vehicles that have been designed in a time in which w- car makers were mainly focusing on uh, uh, the driver 
So really the perspective of designing the car was for driving experience, uh, the comfort of the driver, the comfort of the front seats, um, unless we were thinking of a limousine. And uh, in the future, the perspective is going to change much more and it's going to be much more on the passenger experience. Uh, and it's going to be a completely revolutionary design. We will have a lot of changes also associated with uh, the ability of vehicles to accommodate uh, uh, strangers that might share a ride. And so vehicles will be very different from today. Already some manufacturers are already experiencing, like, you know, with new designs that might have uh, uh, specifically uh, designed features that can generate more privacy or more ability to travel in a comfortable way and in a pleasant way, even if we're sitting next to each other with somebody that we've never met before and we don't know, really. Uh, the other thing that is very important to consider is the cost components. Nowadays, uh, the labor for the driver that is in the car, the chauffeur that is uh, taking us around in a taxi or in an Uber or in uh, a similar mode of transportation is a huge component of the price in which the transportation uh, service is offered. And this will change a lot in the future and will actually make uh, transportation services much more affordable once the sunk cost of the huge technological development to develop automation will be absorbed. And uh, it will make the marginal cost also the extra trip of operating a vehicle to provide a ride much lower. So this could potentially like, you know, make the demand for transportation go up a lot, but also change a lot of trip patterns because people might organize their skill in different ways and so on. But if and the demand goes up, if you remove the costs of the driver so it becomes cheaper to go around, does that not suggest that you're going to get an awful lot more cars, however they're driven by a robot or, or whatever, on the road, which then means the, the current traffic jams that autonomous vehicles are meant to get rid of actually become an awful lot worse. Absolutely. This is a concern that is in, uh, in the mind of planners and policymakers all around the world. In California, we work a lot with public agencies, in particular the California Air Resources Board. They're very concerned about the environmental impacts and the impacts of congestion that will be in the future with automation. Already TNCs, transportation network companies today, are contributing somehow to provide more freedom to the customers, to the passengers, but also somehow they contribute to increasing the number of vehicle miles uh, travel on the network. And in the future, there is expectation where the automation will be even higher. Uh, if shared autonomous vehicles can contribute somehow to make transportation cheaper and more accessible, if we think also privately owned autonomous vehicles, the Tesla model, in which we can have an autopilot in a privately owned vehicle, they can be even more conducive to an increase in, in uh, vehicle miles traveled. Imagine like, you know, the flexibility of driving to work and then not having to pay for parking and sending an empty vehicle, well, if you think about a level five level of automation, and sending the empty vehicle home with ghost trips that are uh, even increasing much more the number of vehicle miles traveled on the road and so on. Uh, on the other hand, we need to consider many other things that will be involved. Uh, cities will change a lot. So if from one side we can have uh, the possibility that more suburban sprawl will happen in society because simply the friction of travel will be lower. But be that's going against history in that we, we had suburbs, the cars, well in fact trains brought suburbs first, but the trains and then cars brought the suburbs. We are now going into densification. That is the trend that everybody assumes. But you're saying we can actually going back to spread out development. 
the last 70 years have seen several different uh, uh, cycles. Uh, there's been a process of suburbanization, and indeed in the last few years there have been a reversal with more like you know regeneration of urban core cities in many places now if you think uh, about the future certainly if we ask today to passengers nobody says that uh, they will like to travel more just simply because it's more comfortable but in reality when they are faced with a choice of uh, traveling extra five miles for instance to go to their work from home and this makes like you know their home much more affordable and they can save fifty thousand dollars or hundred thousand dollars on their home there will probably something that will happen in the future so we might have more suburban development and more additional housing units developing the outskirts of cities there are also some potential for things to go in a different direction if you think about the large amount of parking in cities there was a studies that studies in LA they were showing that about 30 percent of the land is allocated for parking really and uh, in the future, if we have less need for parking because autonomous vehicles, they can relocate to other locations. But where, wh where, are they, where are they going to go? Well, they could either go to places in the outskirts of cities where parking is cheaper or more efficiently located. It can be used by multiple vehicles at different times of the day. Or if we have shared fleet of vehicles, we might simply have fewer vehicles ser uh, serving the population in a more efficient way because the utilization rate will be much higher during the day. So do we need, because we are at a public transport show, so do we need to be encouraging, and this means we as in governments uh, and legislators, should we be encouraging the model of autonomous buses much more than the model of autonomous cars? Because the future for autonomous cars, if everybody has an app that can bring an autonomous car to you, we haven't got enough space for that, but we have got space for what we already have in many cases, autonomous um, train on maglevs or whatever, autonomous buses. So we should be going that model. We shouldn't be going the, the Tesla model. We should be going the, the Volvo autonomous bus model. Absolutely, we should. Uh, uh, bet on public transportation in the future. From the perspective of a societal interest, uh, there is a huge interest in promoting public transportation. Public transportation also needs to change a lot. Nowadays, uh, public transportation operators are already struggling to get used to providing real-time information to users, to providing seamless apps uh, to provide access to their services, even integration of fares and uh, having electronic payment systems is still a topic that is discussed in this conference, UITP, and it's still something that many transit operators, they don't have, and they still rely on more traditional systems for payment. In the future, we need to have public transp transportation operator that needs to evolve in a way to harvest the benefits of technology. For example, the public transportation system of the future might look much more as major corridors in which high quality frequent service is provided and then we have a system of feeding lines which are not operated as today with the bus services but we might have uh, smaller vehicles automated smaller vehicles that when removing the driver can become cost effective also with right sizing the vehicle with much smaller vehicles that bring the passengers to the terminal station or the subway and make them travel to the central core of the cities uh, and uh, in an efficient way, fast way, and also environmental friendly way. In the 1960s, the place where your university is, Davis, California, uh, installed and had for a very, very good bicycle network. 
um, you know, with, with separated bike lanes. This is like one of the first in the, in the US. Um, it went along for a good number of years, and, and it is, there's more people cycling in Davis, California than maybe other places, maybe like Boulder and Colorado will, will have about the same. Um, but then came along a free bus service for academics and for students. And then even though there's fantastic bicycle infrastructure in Davis, the use of that infrastructure went down massively because the, the city or the university provided a free bus. So is there not a case of, um, from a society, from an individual health point of view, public transport, especially free public transport, is actually bad for society? Because you should be having people on the bikes and not the buses. UC Davis is a very special place because it's located in Davis that together with Boulder, Colorado, is really the capital of bicycling in the United States. And it's true that the bus service in, in Davis somehow runs in competition with bicycling and active transportation. At the same time, if you look at the combination of public transportation and active modes in Davis, they really provide a lifestyle choice for many users to live without a car in Davis. And it's something very special in the United States. So from this point of view, providing options can be actually a good way to create alternatives to the use of cars, which uh, can be also an alternative to owning a car. And nowadays in the United States, more than 90% of households have uh, a personally owned car. And it's very rare to have people that by choice, uh, they could afford a car, but they decide not to own a car. It's very rare that they decide not to own a car unless they live in New York City or in, in San Francisco or Chicago in places where public transportation is extremely good and the density of the city and the lack of parking really pushes for people to live without a car. At the same time, if we provide choices, this can be part of the future with the mobility as a service packages, with on-demand mobility, with integration of micro-mobility options like shared dockless bikes or e-scooters, which are becoming very popular in many American cities, but also in Europe and in Asia. This can be really a solution to provide the first last mile access to public transportation. It can be also like, you know, part of a suite of transportation options that may make people not really in need to own a car. And so they can rely on a car for car sharing when they need one, a ride with Uber when they need one. They can use an electric scooter to access public transportation. And then later, if it rains or if it's too late to go back home with public transportation, get a ride home in a safe way and in a comfortable way. And then suddenly we don't need to park a car anymore. We don't need to have the sunk cost of owning a car, insurance costs, registration, and all the other savings of being free from cars. At the same time, this is still very rare in the United States, but there is a possibility now for a paradigm shift in the United States in which suddenly the ownership of cars is not anymore like you know the main uh, way of traveling around in the country. Because of millennials, maybe? Because just, just people are changing? Younger generations are certainly more interested in uh, having more options for traveling. And it's still not clear whether this is uh, just because of economic trends Millennials might allocate uh, their limited economic resources. When they get children uh, and then... Exactly. Mm. But it might be also a cultural change. Probably maybe you know, the younger generation today, it's more important to have uh, uh, traveling abroad as a status symbol rather than owning a car. And some of our research at UC Davis show really that uh, millennials uh, have different patterns and they tend to hold them a little bit longer than previous generation. 
Of course, this sums up to also to some demographic trends because people today get children later in life, they get fewer children on average, and also there is a different uh, relationship with the work activities uh, might be more conducive to have urban lifestyles uh, with uh, relying on fewer cars. So if people are more interested in going abroad and taking that photograph for Instagram than owning a car, that then breaks the habit of owning a car. And an awful lot of car use comes from just habit and sunk costs in that you've, you've bought the car, you've got to use it, you feel as though you're spending so much of your, your, your working life paying for this car, so you're going to have to use it, even if you don't want to. So just cutting that, that ownership model would have a huge paradigm shift, you think? The very interesting thing today in society is that there is a lot of heterogeneity with different groups of passengers uh, traveling in different ways, but also showing different uh, uh, interest when it comes also to status symbol or showing on social media what they think is a symbol of success or something that is trendy and then gets likes uh, from other peers. So we certainly see that, for instance, uh, certain groups, uh, uh, I think about uh, people that moved to the US and second generation of immigrants, for instance, they still sh seem to show more value in the car as a status symbol, the muscle car or the American uh, public that is really interested in so like you know sports car and uh, fancy cars that can be shown like you know to other peers sometimes even as a better measure of success than living in a beautiful home the car is really like you know the status symbol but at the same time we have the urban masses where Instagram and posting pictures of having traveled to 20 different countries around the world and having seen like you know Micronesia and uh, having drank a coffee or a beer in Germany or in Paris uh, might have a bigger role rather than owning the latest model of a car. And autonomous cars in that scenario would be something that you wouldn't own. You would just, in effect, they'd be autonomous taxis rather than, so get away from the ownership of this autonomous car. It's something that somebody else could have been in that car half an hour before you. It's not your car. An analogy many times I mentioned is uh, airplanes. Many times when we fly in an airplane, we don't really care if we are in an Airbus or in a Boeing or what kind of aircraft it is. We probably recognize the airline. We see the seat, the colors, the kind of features we have in the seat, but in the end, it's just a, a way to, get to go from place A to place B. And cars are becoming more and more standardized in this way. Uh, probably more, much more in the future, we will recognize whether the car is operated by Waymo or by Uber or by Lyft, or rather than caring whether this car is a, a Chrysler mm. or a Ford or a Toyota. And that is certainly true, at least for the mainstream manufacturers. There is a much more uh, focus on standardization and uh, customer experience for the interior rather than focusing really on the, the differences between vehicles. Now, the niche of the luxury manufacturers and luxury vehicles, uh, at least for the moment, certainly will live on a different uh, uh, trend because still there is a status symbol associated with having like, you know, a premium brand of a car and also like, you know, the decision whether to purchase a vehicle. Uh, it's uh, not really driven by the need for a vehicle, but much more about like, you know, the pleasure of owning that specific vehicle and uh, the price sensitiveness of uh, these customers is also lower. So here at the UITP conference in Stockholm, outside uh, to get to the station, if you so choose, you can jump in uh, an autonomous pod and you can be driven uh, very slowly. 
um, to, to, the, to the station, but you're not going to be killing anybody because uh, it's not being driven by, by a human, it's being driven by, in effect, a computer, a, a robot. So that uh, autonomous pod that's taking you to the station is, I've lost my train of thought there. That was such a fascinating question that I've lost <laughs> what I was saying. I'll take that one again. <laughs> so here at the, the UITP uh, conference in, in Stockholm, there's, a, there's a, an autonomous shuttle that can take you to the station. I stood in front of it yesterday and stopped it with, with their, their, the uh, permission of uh, uh, Navia, the, the, the company who's uh, brought it here. But it stopped. It just didn't go anywhere. And then I, I jumped back onto the sidewalk. It moved again. I jumped back into the, into the road, and it stopped again. And then I laughed a, a, a maniacal, evil laugh, saying, you're not going anywhere. So in the future, how are autonomous vehicle manufacturers, how are governments, how are city um, legislators going to stop me as a vandal as a pedestrian stopping that autonomous vehicle, as a cyclist <laughs> going in front of that autonomous vehicle and not letting it pass, what are the regulations that are going to be needed to stop me doing that? Vehicle automation is a great opportunity for the future, but certainly there are a lot of issues still to be solved, in particular with interactions with non-automated vehicles and with pedestrians and bicyclists and all the other users on the road. And here we need to distinguish different contexts. Uh, here at the UITP in Stockholm, we have very beautiful roads, very carefully paved, high quality of the transportation system, but also very well-educated people on the roads that observe the rules and so on. And in the United States, similarly, in many areas, we have high quality of the road network and also like you know, separation of flows in which vehicles travel many times on freeways or separated highways where we don't really have a lot of pedestrians and bicyclists. In this context, it's already easier to start to introduce vehicle automation. Certainly, many regulators are thinking about having dedicated lanes for automated vehicles. The equity implications of this are not clear because if automated vehicles are serving, at least at the beginning, the uh, most educated part of the population or the higher income, why we should give them a benefit. But certainly from a transportation efficiency standpoint, having only automated vehicles on a certain lane can really harvest the benefits in terms of increased capacity of the roadways. But if you think more extensively of the entire cities, but also in other countries, uh, two weeks ago we had uh, the World Conference on Transport Research in Mumbai, India. And not only we have pedestrians and bicycles and mopeds and tuk-tuk, the three-wheelers serving uh, passengers on the road, but we even have cows and stray dogs crossing the street. And an autonomous vehicle in that context will pretty much be stuck the entire day. And the more the users will know that the autonomous vehicle stops because of a safety reasons, it will be very safe, but also there will be zero ability to go anywhere with an autonomous vehicle. So certainly in well-controlled highways uh, and in highly regulated environments like the United States or Northern Europe can be, we can see like, you know, the first uh, uh, applications of autonomous vehicles in commercial service. Now, I also believe that we need to really put the human being at the center of the attention. So really, I wouldn't like to see restrictions on the movements of bicyclists and pedestrians just because we need to give priority to cars. 
in the last 50 years we have done already a lot of mistakes putting cars at the center of planning we have designed cities destroying sometimes beautiful neighbors just to create freeway rounds and highways and freeways to make transportation faster at the same time destroying the culture and the atmosphere of entire neighbors and separating communities and many times really like lowering the quality of life in cities are we going in the future in the same direction in which we want to put more restriction to bicycling and walking and to people that choose not to own a car or to drive by car or we can use the technology benefits to have more organized cities in which we have fewer cars on the road we can get the benefit for automated transportation in the public transportation sector but also in a uh, shared fleet of vehicles at the same time really promoting more space for non-car modes also restricting like you know the access of vehicles to areas where we can use the transportation infrastructure more efficiently and really bring back the city to users and i hope we go in the second direction that second direction giovanni uh, is a socially responsible one the right way to go but you're an academic you're not a legislator you're not uh the CEO of Mercedes-Benz. Uh, these people are going to want access for their very expensive, very profitable vehicles to be free of the cows, <laughs> the bicycles, and uh, the pedestrians. So I see a very different future to the way that you would like the future to go, a future that harks back to the early 1900s where pedestrians were suddenly become jaywalkers for going on the road. And the motor industry spent a lot of time, effort, and um, money making that, uh, that a social bad that you were crossing the road where the cars. So roads became for cars only at that point. Is that not a much more likely future? Because we've already seen it happen in the past than your uh, for want of a better term, kind of a woolly, social, uh, socially responsible view, that that didn't happen in the past. Why would that socially responsible vision happen in the future when you have huge corporations going to be pushing for this? It's absolutely a very valid point. We have today, like, you know, the pressure on regulators to give more space to autonomous vehicles, to cars on the road, and so on. Still, regulators are the ones that finally are deciding how to access the road space, but also very scarce resources like uh, curb space. And that's something actually where regulators have the ability to regulate how people can access the transportation system. And there is always the pressure from the private corporations uh, to increase the size of the business and to promote like the auto industry and for many years has been thought like you know what is good for General Motors is good for the United States and probably we are gonna see still some of these in the future at the same time we see that many public agencies are aware of the need to promote well-being improved health in cities reduce accidents improve safety improved active transportation and certainly these goals are much more present today than they were in the previous decades. And this is also common in not only the progressive states like California or Northern Europe, but it's also present in many other places. Uh, the risk associated with obesity and sedentary styles is something that is uh, aware, all 
politicians and policymakers are aware of, uh, even in places where there is not a very progressive uh, uh, um, agenda. And so probably even if things will not be done for the environmental agenda, they might be done for a prospect of improving the quality of life and promoting more active lifestyle. But it's also a very important mission that we have, for instance, in the academic uh, sector to increase the awareness on these topics and also push for policy making in the right direction. Uh, I'm definitely convinced that there is the possibility to combine uh, the interest of the private sector for the development of technologies to recover the huge uh, investments that are done today in these technologies uh, with also having cities which are better structured with better benefits for all. Um, in California, we're working with public agencies supporting the uh, discussion about uh, having new zero-emission vehicle mandates, for instance, uh, for ride-hailing companies. And in the future also there is a lot of expectations that uh, there must be requirements for automated vehicles to be zero-emission vehicles and also we need to make sure that uh, electricity is also produced with clean sources because if you burn coal to produce electricity we certainly are not making any favor to the environment. And we might try to push even more like you know to have a connection between academic institutions the research communities and policymakers and that's the reason for which for which for instance in UC Davis uh, our program is a research and policy program we meet regularly with policymakers with people that are in charge of making regulations I also want to make a point which is uh, something that we hear many times uh, from the industry leaders the industry sector is not against regulations the industry wants clear regulations they don't want a regulatory framework that changes every year, every two years. Even the environmental standards of emissions and uh, energy efficiency of vehicles is something that the, in the car maker industry has actually accepted. And they don't want them to change every two years because they make long-term investments in newer, cleaner technologies. And the last thing they want to do is that another administration comes and after three years changing all the standards uh, when they already made investments planning for the next 15 years. So even for the future, if we think about shared automated vehicles, it can be something that today we have an alignment of interest and the industry plans for that. They make investments that go in the direction of being more a mobility provider rather than a car manufacturer. And this is a trend we see a lot in the industry. All the big car groups in the world are already like, you know, investing heavily in the software components, uh, in the mobility as a service components, uh, and they're making either alliances with other companies or they're developing in-house their own mobility services. And this is also a much uh, higher added value industry. So that's also something to, to think. What happened in the computer industry in the past in which many manufacturers have moved from the hardware to the software uh, platforms mm -hmm. is something that will happen also in the car sector in which we will have fewer big manufacturers providing the hardware, but really the added value will be in providing the service and the mobility services, the platform, the user base, the payment systems, and so on. And this is really a big market and it's something that definitely a lot of different providers are really thinking about very carefully. Final question, and then you can go for lunch. Um, how do you get around Davis? I go around in Davis without owning a car. I use my bicycle all the time to commute to work, and I use uh, pretty heavily both Uber and Lyft, and I take the train to go to Sacramento and to San Francisco Bay Area, but also I rent a car when I need to travel out of town. And uh, I must say I'm proud of not owning a car in Davis. At the same time, I travel too often by plane 
So my environmental footprint probably is still too high <laughs> and much worse than I would like it to be. And do you think that the mode of transport you're using there, certainly the bicycle in Davis, is that because you're from the EU, you're European, and you are very different to, say, American colleagues? Certainly my uh, European heritage is uh, pushing me like, you know, to have more interest in non-car modes of travel. I also don't really feel that I have an attraction to owning a car. To me, owning a car is just something that can be useful sometimes, but I don't see the need unless, unless I really need it because I don't have children and I can move around very easily without a car. But at the same time, uh, it's also the land use that is really pushing for certain choices. In Davis, it's easy to go around by bicycle, to walk. It's very pleasant environment. We have high quality bicycling infrastructure. In other places, unfortunately, there is not a lot of these uh, opportunities. We have today some options to improve this. I think really about the micromobility options, where we think about the electric scooter sharing and the dockless bike sharing. These are really providing an opportunity for many administrations and many cities to have a good reason to provide the bicycle infrastructure they never built because in the past they thought they didn't have the critical mass. Today when we sum the privately owned bicycles, the dockless bikes and the dockless electric scooters, they can all travel on the same infrastructure with relatively minor problems, but it's much better to mix electric scooters and bicycles than to mix electric scooters and cars. And if we think about uh, the sum of all these users, we actually have a justification now to build better bicycling infrastructure and better infrastructure which is really focused on people that decide to walk, to bike, to use public transportation. And it's a great opportunity that cities ha have, and it's also a great opportunity to change the way many cities are shaped. So I hope that in the next 10 years we will see many more investments also in American cities to promote non-car travel also thanks to technology and to the fact uh, that uh, these new options like micromobility are making even people that were not used to bicycle in the past suddenly interested in trying something new which is uh, suddenly appealing. It's uh, something that is also cool for young people to go out at night using a scooter or a bicycle while in the past maybe it was considered only the poor options for students that could not afford a car. And this is really like you know, a change in the mentality that can bring like, you know, larger changes in society in the near future. Thanks, Giovanni. The details of his Three Revolutions program and his contact details can be found on the show notes at the-spokesmen.com. And the same goes for my next two guests. But before I bring them on, here is David with a short commercial interlude. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And hi, everybody. It's David. And I am here. Well, you know why I'm here. I'm here to talk about our longtime loyal and fantastic sponsor, Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Remember, that's J-E-N-S-O-N usa.com. Now, what's Jensen USA? Well, if you don't know by now, you should. Jensenusa.com is the place where you're going to find all of the things that you need for your complete cycling lifestyle. Complete bikes, mountain bikes, road bikes, gravel grinders, everything in between, components, apparel, accessory, tools, shoes, really gifts, everything you can imagine that you would need for your cycling lifestyle. And we're not talking about off-branded stuff. We are talking about name brands that you know, love, and need for your cycling lifestyle. You're going to find those name brands at incredible 
low prices, and that's all going to be coupled with unparalleled customer service. If you haven't been to Jensen USA before, I urge you to do it right now and every time you need something for cycling because they're going to have it at great prices and you're going to be very, very satisfied with their customer service. Go ahead and check them out. That's at JensenUSA.com slash The Spokesman. Our thanks to Jensen USA for supporting The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast and our thanks to you for supporting our sponsor, Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, back to you. Thanks, David. And now here's 45 Minutes with behavioural scientist Steve Martin. Listen out for a late contribution from Transdev's Marielle Villamot. I got into behavioural science primarily by accident. Uh, like a lot of things in life, they come about rather than being thought about. So I can't sit here and say I had a plan to become a behavioural scientist. I think I wanted to be a train driver at one point and maybe a courier. Um, but I did what most people did after I left um, school and university, which was I went and got a job actually working for a big company. I worked in sales and um, I had increasing roles of responsibility and my final job before I kind of jumped ship from big industry was I was responsible for sales training, sales marketing, uh, effectiveness. And I came across uh, a noted psychologist in the US who was studying and measuring influence and persuasion of all things. And I was kind of fascinated by that because I worked for a healthcare company. We were obsessed with measuring everything. Yet we didn't do a very good job of measuring behavior. Um, and so I contacted him thinking that primarily uh, I'd bring him into the organization. He could help us. Um, but about the same time the organization I was working for was acquired by a bigger competitor. And so I jumped ship and started out uh, with this academic, uh, a business, it was 20 years ago now, and um, you know he was an esteemed behavioral scientist, and uh, I've become one. Uh, well, not esteemed, but I've become a behavioral scientist primarily by association. And so, for the last 20 years, we've been studying how and why, and the reasons why people do the things they do, and how you can influence that, um, primarily to um, for good. For good, yeah, that's what I mean. So you, <laughs> you know, can do how, something bad things there too. Well, you can persuade people to do bad things, and um, there are some companies out there that are interested in persuading people for just purely mercenary commercial uh, reasons as well. And, and so the ethical consideration to us is an important one. You know, um, but I think generally, the, it's the case, Carlton, that if um, you have a good goal in mind and you want to take someone in a direction that's going to be useful and helpful for them as well. One that they would choose to do themselves if they had the time and the available information to make that decision. Then I think we're generally on safe ground. Um, and we can provide perhaps signals and warnings to those people um, that are manipulated about ways that perhaps they can defend themselves. So tell me about influence at work then. What, that's that's yeah. what was set up basically. Yeah, so influence at work we're a team of behavioral scientists. Our origins are in uh, the United States, in Phoenix, where my colleague Robert Cialdini is uh, a professor of psychology at Arizona State University. Uh, I lead the, the UK business, um, but also the kind of global consulting part of it as well. And so um, its relevance to transport uh, and why we're here today is that um, I spoke at a conference uh, that Transdev was hosting I think five years ago now, 
And I was talking about some of the experiments we were doing. Yeah. For example, uh, there was an experiment that uh, Bob Cialdini conducted with another one of my colleagues, Noah Goldstein, looking at what messages, what, you know the little messages that you see in bathrooms in hotels that ask you to read your towels? What's the most effective thing that you can put on that card that persuades people to behave in these environmentally friendly ways? And it turned out that most hotels around the world knew what the most popular message to put on the card was, but they didn't know the most effective message to put on the card. It, it took a behavioral scientist to help them to construct that message. And what is that message? The message generally is that most people that stay in our hotel do use and reuse their towels and linens while they stay here. Um, and it's a kind of obvious message. It's steeped in that idea that people look to others to decide what the right course of action is. And I presented this data to this conference at, uh, that Transdev were hosting. And one of their transport managers came along and said, well, it's interesting. If you can persuade people to reuse their towels, and subsequently we uh, ran some experiments with the UK government looking at how we could persuade people to pay their taxes on time. Like nudge things? Yeah, that it's kind, kind of, of yeah. So that. I wrote those letters mm -hmm. back in 2009, just before the Nudge unit was actually set up. So that was kind of one of the early Nudge um, exemplars, if you like, when, when David set up the Nudge unit. <coughs> and then a, a very smart and insightful transport manager, uh, having listened to this talk, came to me afterwards and said, well, if you can persuade people to reuse their towels, and if you can persuade people to pay their taxes, um, do you think you could persuade people when they travel on our trains? Uh, because there are situations where people jump on the trains, particularly light rail systems where there's no barriers to entry, and they fail to buy a ticket, and that's costly for the, the transport network. In fact, everybody loses. It's not just the transport operator. Uh, the, the government loses. Uh, other passengers lose as well. It has knock-on effects in terms of you know, impacts on uh, antisocial behavior, all sorts of different things. And so that was interesting, and we said, well, why don't we try it? And so we did, and so we ran an experiment, firstly in Dublin, which uh, was pretty successful. And then um, two high-placed executives in Transdev, so Mario Villamu and uh, Jan Larish, who's now the CEO of Transdev in the US, said, there's something interesting here, you know, because we don't just run networks in Dublin, we run networks around the world, and so, that was the essentially that was the nucleus of the development of what we now call Change by Transdev, which is essentially a behavioral science unit inside one of the world's biggest transport operators, uh, which is now run by uh, a lady called Dolly, uh, <coughs> excuse me, it's run by a lady called uh, Dr. Alice Soriano, uh, a French neuroscientist. Um, and we're now employing these insights from behavioral science in, in a wide variety of uh, areas that are transport related across the world. Go back to Dublin, what was the experiment? What was the actual thing that happened and what was the, the result? So the thing that happened was that there was a perception in Dublin that more people actually traveled on the light rail system without paying for a ticket than the reality was. So we essentially needed to reset that perception in Dublin as mine 
times that fair evasion was actually a lot less prevalent than it actually was. So one of the things we know is that you know, uh, a basic insight from behavioral science is that we, we look to others to essentially decide on our own conduct and our own behavior. It's a lot easier to cheat and not buy a ticket if we think that lots of other people are doing it. It's a lot easier to drop litter uh, in the park if we see that other people have actually done that. Uh, it's a lot easier not to turn up to meetings on time if the perception is that okay, meetings never start <laughs> yeah, on, on time. And sorry, I wasn't trying to dig you there. Um, and we essentially use that same insight in Dublin. It's actually say, look, the reality is that, that most people do the honest thing. And we then put mechanisms in place to essentially recognize and thank people for doing that. So sometimes it was as simple as, thank you for being honest. You're one of the vast majority of Dubliners that ride on the, on the light rail system uh, that do so with a, with a valid ticket. And we found that it was remarkably successful. Uh, it didn't require lots of infrastructure change. It didn't require us to take on more ticket collectors, more individuals to police the system. We didn't have to increase the fines. We simply stated a reality and, and reset the public's perception. And we reduced the fare evasion rates by uh, just over 16%. Um, now, it's not the case in Dublin because it's a relatively small city, but just to put that into context, in some of the larger cities around the world, a 1% incidence of fare evasion can be the equivalent of multiple millions of dollars. Um, so uh, these aren't uh, small effects. And these aren't um, little tinkering around the edges that we're doing here. Um, we're, we're demonstrating some pretty big impacts, often from, from very small changes. Yeah. So that's existing customers of transit systems. What about working on those people? How can you persuade the people in the cars to get on the trains? Mm. Yeah, I, well, that's a great question. And I think, I think, the insights from behavioral science have something to offer. Um, I don't think they have the whole solution. That's a big problem. And you know, I, I fully subscribe to this idea that if you've got a big problem, uh, a single big solution is unlikely to be found. It's lots and lots of things. But I do think that we actually need to make um, public transport cool again um, and enjoyable and accessible and popular because you know and I've been in Stockholm now for, for for a day and I've looked at some of the amazing insights and technologies and engineering solutions that you know organizations around the world are showing off their wares here but it does strike me that a, a big thing that's missing is that is a, is a psychological revolution so you know we can we can build an app to get people information about what they times of the trains are and how easily they can get from A to B, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're actually going to do that. Um, so I think we probably need to do a much, much better job of designing transport systems and transit operations in a way that goes with the grain of how people are actually going to behave, not how we would like them to behave or we think that technology or you know, engineers think they should behave. You know, we are not as rational and considered as uh, we'd like to think we are. So anything that just makes it easier for people to travel on public transport is going to be useful. And anything that employs these 
you know, behavioral insights that allow, you know, essentially people to start to think about using transport without really thinking about it too hard. It's kind of interesting insight. Um, this is a, I subscribe to this fully. The idea that um, I think people believe that in order to change people's behaviors, they have to change their minds first. And I don't subscribe to that idea. I think there's lots of examples of where we behave in certain ways that are uh, entirely against what the evidence suggests that we should do or what good information tells us we should actually do. But it's just that in that moment, Carlton, this seems like it's the right thing to do. My kind of like reptilian part of my brain kicks in and just says, I, I need to behave in this way, you know. Sorry, I was going to say, just a, you know, an interesting transport example is the number of people that drive around in these gas guzzling four by fours with Save the Planet stickers on the back of them. You know, there's a, you know they, 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 they clearly think that it's the wrong thing to do, but in that moment, they're still doing it. So. So, how many of your insights that you're providing to Transdev, in effect, are adverts? So you're like persuading people with with actual text and pictures and, and, and in effect, an advertisement up somewhere. And how much of it will be actual infrastructure that you could say, well, if we put a bin there, we think that enough people will then put their trash in yeah. if you don't put it there. So yeah. how much of your, your stuff is, is in effect, intellectual and, and mind stuff? And you're in trying to uh, impress people on that. And how much is how you can actually physically change stuff? Well, I, I would answer that question in the following way and actually say that all of it actually is, is informed and intellectual because um, putting a bin somewhere, you could argue, is, 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 is a physical change. But knowing where to put the bin is the intellectual aspect of it. So it, it might be you know, moving one thing to, to a different position. Uh, but actually, a lot of the work we've actually done is, is deeply insightful in terms of understanding the psyche of what people are experiencing in the moment uh, you know so for example if you're traveling on on a, a train or a bus and you don't have a ticket most people and I say most people it's not all people but the vast majority of people will have some sort of form of anxiety or you know they'll be thinking is, is you know what's the likelihood that I'm gonna get caught here you know am I and understanding those deeper insights is important for then recognizing what intervention or what change to make or what message to send them so it's 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 not advertising I would say in some instances we do communicate a particular message but often it's not just the message that's communicated it's where the message is and the timing of it that's important as well so I do think it's a step on from just simply saying you know what, what's an advertising message and in some instances actually uh, so for example there are studies that we're running uh, with bus operators in the United States you know yeah, most most of us are interested in the bus driver driving in a safe way you know within the speed limits within the the, uh, the rules of the road etc etc but we've done experiments that show that um, the way in which they're incentivized not the amount that they're incentivized, but the way that their incentives are actually framed has a big influence on how safely they drive. You know, so for example, um, if you uh, if you say to a driver, you know, you're going you know, a taxi driver or a bus driver, you know, uh, if, if if you drive for the next uh, 
month without any incidents and, and you drive safely and you've got a clean you know, driving record, let's say we'll give you $100 at the end of the month. It turns out if you pay them $25 a week rather than $100 at the end of the month, they actually drive safer. Um, it also turns out that if you pay them at the beginning of the month rather than the end of the month, that has an impact on how because they Make feel it more, they feel it quicker and... Yeah, so well, we know that people's reactions to incentives are often driven by the regularity and frequency and the immediacy. You know, if, if you do a good job, Carlton, and someone pats you on the back afterwards and says, that was a good job, that reinforcement has uh, arguably a much bigger impact than if at the end of the year, your boss turns around at the appraisal time and says, oh, you know that job that you did back in February? Yeah, it's pretty. The, the, the disconnect, the, the temporal disconnect there is, is important. So it's not just about moving bins or changing messages. It's, it's actually looking at the whole journey, the, the, all the different areas in which uh, an individual is placed within a system or an infrastructure and how you optimize that so that uh, as many people uh, as is uh, realistic, you know, end up behaving in ways that are right for them and, and, and right for everyone else. I've been into the London headquarters of uh, GlaxoSmithKline. In Brentford? Yes. Yeah. And uh, there's a transport uh, uh, element to this. They were trying to get uh, their employees on bicycles more because their car park could not mm. take any more cars. They had to get rid of the, the, the cars. And I think they were actually building a new building, which would make lots of money if they got rid of the, the car park. And they were doing this across the company. This wasn't just the workers. This was you know, everybody from CEOs. So they had a voucher system mm -hmm. where if you rode your bike to, to work, you got like a little token. And I was in there in the, the, the staff canteen where the CEO of the company was cycling to work and was getting very excited at getting a silly little green mm. token mm. that other people in the company, it's like, this is the CEO of this mm. company, mm. but getting excited because he's getting a little green token mm. to tag onto yeah. his phone and to say, you know, I'm, I'm actually yeah. I'm riding more to work than you. So that was incentivizing even people who don't need these little knickknacks that they're, that they're given. It's great, yeah. But they're just. Yeah, it's a great insight. You're, you're exactly right. And you know, what you've, what you've described there is, you know, from a certain perspective, uh, the that that kind of conflict sometimes between the status of an individual and their needs to be connected to their group. In this instance, you know, I'm part of, you know, I may be the CEO, but I'm still part of this collective group of people. Um, and the other thing I think that you've um, recognised there in that in that example, as surprising it is, is is that you know, we generally are motivated to behave in ways that allow us to feel good about ourselves. E even if feeling good about ourselves is a, a temporary kind of metaphorical pat on the back for doing a, a good job and, and being part of the gang. Um, so I think it's a good example um, and, and is in full alignment with some of the basic principles of, of, of behavioral and, and influence science, this idea that we don't often have the time and the energy and the, the mental capacity to weigh up all the pros and cons about you know what's the right thing to do here you know who's the right person to vote for president is Brexit the right thing should I take a train or should I drive my car these are 
if you start to think really deeply about them, these, these are quite complex issues. And so we rely largely on a fundamental set of motivations within us that we try to fulfill. Ego is one of them. We want to behave in ways that allow us to feel good about ourselves. And so collecting that little green token, even if I'm the CEO, allows me to do that. We're motivated to kind of be connected to others. And so if other people see me doing that, um, then that's probably a good thing as well. And, you know, and arguably those people that see the CEO doing that come to see it as an accurate thing to do as well. And if he's the CEO, he's doing it, that's probably good. So that simple example neatly, I think, demonstrates a fundamental set of motivations. And, and that's the thing that I, I think is the important insight here is that in that regard, we're all the same. You know, you might be different to Alice, Alice is gonna be different to Marielle, Marielle's gonna be different to me. But fundamentally, at the core, are a set of human motivations that we are all fundamentally interested in realizing. And they're, they're simple, they're human, they're designed to allow us to get through our complex lives as certainly as we can when we're not really certain about much at all. This thing I'm wearing on my wrist, it measures my um, heart rate, it measures my activities, and it motivates me to exercise more because I get a 2.5 euro free coffee at the end of the week uh, from Starbucks if I hit that target. I can afford a coffee, but because I'm getting that coffee for free, for me exercising, that is making me exercise more. That's making me tipping over. So is, am I being um, fooled there, but to my benefit, by the psychology of target setting? Well, a, a, a classic economist may, may, may argue that you are. That the cost, all those sunk costs or, or costs of resource that you're actually putting in, you know, having to check your watch, you know, and, you know, mediate and, under, and recognize where that, that feedback is actually so coming from. Yeah, 20 minutes so far. You know, what's the cost of that 20 minutes? It's, it's more than two, two pound 50 in a free cup of coffee. Um, but I, I think what you're doing there is, is, is you're speaking to your inner behavioral economist as opposed to your, your inner economist in that instance, or the, or the human aspect of that. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've, you've set up an infrastructure. I, I suspect, I mean, you, you've told me a little bit about your love of cycling um, and, and, and the fact that you're pretty fit looking guy. So, you know, you are probably already of a mindset to be, you know, attracted to that kind of proposition as well. Um, so I think those things help. Um, and yeah, the little reward of two pound 50 of coffee that you um, are awarded at the end of the week. Yeah, it's, uh, th this is interesting, isn't it? This is that you don't, I, I think sometimes we often make the mistake of putting prices on things that often crowd out intrinsic motivations to want to behave in that way anyway. See, there's, there's free coffee here. I can get coffee yeah. anywhere I want. It's not a motivator here. Yet all of a sudden, when I'm out running to the bus, running to the, the tube here, it's like, well, if I run a bit faster, I'll then get that free coffee. It's like, it's free coffee, it's, it's, it's £2.50, it's nothing. Why, why am I motivating? But you think a lot of it is, well, there's I'm an intrinsic, motivating yeah. myself. Yeah, so there's, well, the there's an intrinsic motivation there as opposed to an extrinsic one. I mean, the, 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 one of the best examples that's well known within the behavioral science community is the story of the, the daycare center 
who had the issue of parents who were increasingly picking up their kids late from daycare. And so what they did in their wisdom was to instigate a fine system. So if you're five minutes or later, you know, picking up your children, we're going to fine you. And they put the fine in place, they put the policy in place, and pretty much uh, immediately after they did that, uh, the number of parents that actually turned up late for their kids increased dramatically. Increased? Increased dramatically. Because they kind of looked at it and they said, okay, well you've put a price to this, so it's now a babysitting service that I'm paying for. And essentially what that motivation, that, that, that fine did, was it introduced a kind of a market economic element to it. Um, and it and it largely overcrowd, uh, overpowered or crowded out that intrinsic motivation, which most of us are like you know will agree with, which is actually, if you're a parent, you do the right thing and you pick your kids up at the right time. Now, so they decided to monetize that issue, and as a result, they increased the problem. So they then decided that the thing that they would actually do would be to remove the fines, in the hope that everything would go back to normal. But at that point, all the damage had actually been done. So they could never get back that intrinsic motivation. Um, so so bringing that into a transport sphere, yeah. congestion pricing, mm. which is assumed to be something that, well, A, it, it actually pays for, for, for transit systems to be put in, but it's assumed to be something that motivates people to drive less. But if what you're saying there is, you just, you just factor in that cost and you now, you, 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 you see road transport as something that, yeah, I've got to pay for this, but then you just start paying for it. So in the cities where congestion pricing is put in, there's, a, there's this, right at the beginning, there's people go, oh, I'm not going to drive them yeah. and stop. But it's after about three, four years, you just see the it driving is, back to the norm. it goes back to the norm, yeah. but people just start paying yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what would be interesting, I haven't seen the data on this, but it would be interesting to see is, you know, how they then, conduct themselves when they are driving, you know, because now I've paid 20 quid to drive in central London or $15 to whatever city it is. Am I entitled to actually, you know, drive in the bus lane? Am I more likely to kind of speed? Do, you know, do I cut people up? Am I a more aggressive driver because I've essentially paid for the honour or the privilege of actually doing that? It'd be interesting to look at that. I'm sure people have. As a cyclist, I would say yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is absolutely, because people already assume that they've paid for the roads. Hmm and they see cyclists as freeloaders, mm. and so they act aggressively around cyclists. And, and, and because cyclists are assumed not to have paid, even though that it's tax pays for the roads, it's not, it's not any user fee generally, it's, it's not um, your you know, taxes in your car, it's generally the, the valuation of your mm. house is actually paying. Uh, and, yeah. and general taxation is paying for the road, yeah. but freeloaders are assumed to being the cyclists not paying for it, even though they might yeah. be very high. Yeah. Your your father-in-law, for instance, I'm sure he might be a very high tax-paying person, but he rides a bike. But he's assumed to be a pauper and a freeloader when he's on his bicycle. Yeah, and this is why I think you know to that point that I made earlier, Carlton. This that you know, if we want to encourage people to adopt different transit modes, be it bikes, be it buses, light rail, probably less so on heavy commuter trains and things like that where it's, you know, I think the message has actually got through. We kind of 
we kind of need to make it cool in an inclusive way. You know, it's, it's not that public transport and riding a bike are for a certain domain or demographic that perhaps, you know, can't afford a car or choose not to. It's not they can't afford a car, they choose not to. Um, so I think there are probably ways in which we can make public transport just cooler, more attractive, you know, sexier even sometimes. Um, uh, but we don't think in those ways. We, we, I, I, I think, you know, if you're, if you're a, if you're an individual responsible for designing the infrastructure of transport, you, you think in an engineering mindset. You think, you know, how do I get X number of people from A to B in the in the quickest possible time? I mean, there's one of the classic examples. Uh, I think it's Rory's story, wasn't it? He used to say that uh, the, the, the Eurostar. I think they spent something in the order of like six billion dollars or something um, to come up with a way in which they could make the uh, the journey. Uh, even more effective, and, and, and so they, they spent $6 billion, I think, carving 23 minutes off the time it took from you know, London to Paris. Uh, I think Rory's argument was, was you could have saved half your money and just employed supermodels and really gorgeous people to serve Chateau Neuf de Pape on the, on the train, and people would actually pay to stay on the train longer, and more people would. So th there's that example of, you know, that difference between taking an engineering mindset and a kind of behavioural mindset. And, and this is not me saying that um, one, is, uh, one, one is preferred over the other. I think they, they, they both need to be there in that instance. Mario was about to say something. Mm. Can I add yes. something? I've been <coughs> in this industry uh, for now uh, a little more than 10 years, and I found that the pace of change has been extremely slow. Uh, because we have been trying to improve performance, scheduling, network design, but nevertheless, we don't see figures moving that much. And so what has been, uh, and this is not me saying it, it's Mohamed Mesgani, who is the general secretary of UITP, is with all the efforts put by the engineer in this way of, of designing a new mobility, what has been changing mobility is more the disruptors than the insiders of the mobility world. So the same way that we are now, we need now to catch up with this uh, disruption world, um, I think that there is a great opportunity. And the, oppo the opportunity will come with the diversity of mindset, culture, and way of thinking that we need to bring to the company. Two examples, thanks to the digital revolution, which is not going to do everything, as uh, rightly uh, Steve mentioned, we have now data scientists data scientists are going to bring, uh, through the crunching of data, things that will help us in the way we design network, in the way we redesign uh, a network, and the way also we address to target group of passengers. So that's new to our industry. And in the same way that we are now recruiting data scientists, we are recruiting startup mindset, people that are capable of uh, having uh, innovation instilling in the culture of the company. So we are recruiting uh, millennials with a different way of approaching uh, innovation. You know, where you don't want to have the perfect world working. You just test and learn, test and learn, and you do pot. And the third uh, dimension that I think is critical is to incorporate behavioral scientists in our world. Because engineer cannot solve the world because at the end of the day if they would have been able to change the world we would have been in a better position in terms of model shift so 
for our company, it's not it's industry direction, approaching innovation, uh, having it, being able to incorporate the most advanced behavioral science outcome to the world of uh, mobility. And when we call us the mobility company, and when we say we are people serving people, if we are people serving people, then behaviors are key to our way to approach the future. You, you mentioned disruptors. Yes. Who are those disruptors? Well, you know them. I don't want to quote them. You know who they are. But you mean the scooter companies and the... I mean the scooter company, I mean the Uber Ubers company, and Lyft the and Lyft and, uh, and well, all of that. So here's an example. I, 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 and I, I know you don't want to mention them, but I, I will mention like ride-sharing ride companies. So if you think about it, they've, it's not the technology that's actually essentially driven this huge growth. It's, it's the behavioral aspect of it. So, um, you know, because if you think about the proposition, say for a, um, an, an on-demand ride-sharing app, basically what you're actually asking people to do is to take a leap of faith by going on the internet, connecting with someone they've never ever met before, and having that stranger come and pick them up in a car that they've never seen before, probably late at night. You know, how do you know that there's not a serial killer or whatever the case may be? That, that's essentially the proposition. Okay, and I think we're of a similar age, <laughs> and we were always told, and I think our parents, and we'll probably tell our kids the same thing, you don't, you don't speak to strangers, let alone c contact them on the internet and get them to come and pick you up and get into a strange car. So as a proposition, it just makes no logical sense whatsoever. But then if you start to think about it, it actually makes perfect sense because it fulfills a set of fundamental motivations. So the first thing is, is that actually you get accurate information. No one wants to know, uh, no one wants to be kind of standing outside in the rain going, how long is it going to be for this car to come, this train to come, whatever the case may be. So sometimes, you know, those countdown um, signals on platforms, you know, I'd rather know that my train is going to be 16 minutes rather than the train is coming and have no information at all. So it, it provides a kind of accuracy cue. The fact that I can actually see the name of the driver and I can see, you know, his or her rating based on other trips kind of provide some useful stuff. And if you think about it, from a certain perspective, and I know it's only a momentary uh, moment, but it even applies and activates that kind of ego motivation that we have as well. So, you know, you, you get your ride-sharing app and you order your car, and if you time it perfectly, you can come out of the cinema or the pub and feel a little bit like a celebrity for a few minutes because your, your car's pulling up and you can literally like, get straight into it. So in that context, it fulfills... Uh, this trio of fundamental motivations and no surprise then that it's successful it's not successful not making money though sorry not making money though so well, uber is not making money well uber's not yeah so you need to think about how you define success but if you're defining success in terms of your first question which is how do you actually encourage people to engage and adopt in a in a, in a program if that's the success then it's been incredibly successful um and i, and I suspect and we kind of need to think in the same way when it comes to public transport so, final question. Um, you're English. I am. So, your cultural references, your, your insights into behavioral sciences will come from that perspective. Transdev is multinational. You're operating many, many markets. Uh, do your insights cross over cultural boundaries, or do you see, well, that... That scheme that you did in Dublin wouldn't work if you did it in Paris because Parisians would have a very, very different way of thinking about their, 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 their 
interacting with other people mm. socially. Mm. So how do you um, take yeah. your, your uh, scientific field and then ma marry it and mesh it to many, many different cultures yeah. around the world? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, there's two responses to that. So, so the first is to recognize that there's a hierarchy to how uh, behavior comes about. Uh, and the top of that hierarchy is the human characteristic. Okay, so um, this is, uh, and I'll talk to culture in a second, but generally speaking, we are a lot more similar to each other than we are different, regardless of our, our upbringing or our culture. Okay, so th the first port of call for any behavioral scientist is, is to think about behavior from a, an all-encompassing human perspective. Okay, just because I was born in the UK and you were born in America or born in South America or uh, you know, the Mediterranean or whatever the case may be, those fundamental motivations that drive us are always going to be the same. So we always start with those universals. But we can tailor and tweak and customize it to a local cultural need. So for example, we know that generally speaking, uh, the further west and north you are in the world, the more individualistic cultures tend to be. And so as a result, you know, those appeals to ego, those appeals to kind of reward and incentive uh, are likely, individual incentive in this instance, are, are likely to carry a priority. Whereas the further east and south you go, the more collective cultures tend to be. And so uh, those appeals that are more uh, focused on the collective good, the, the value to the local community or the society are, are, are likely to uh, carry greater sway. So we have that in, uh, we, we always have that in context as well, but we start from a human perspective. And the Paris thing is kind of interesting. So, you know, fare evasion, for example, we know um, the closer you get to the city of Paris, the higher fare evasion rates are. And I believe that the reason for this is certainly based on some of the data we've actually seen is that there's, there's, there's something about a big city that makes it easier to be anonymous. Whereas if you're out in the kind of communities and in the rural, you know, you, you know it's okay. You know, I don't mind cheating so much if no one knows who I am, but I don't want to put my face to cheating uh, in front of someone that no actually knows who I am. So, so th there's kind of, it's a great question, Carlton, because we start broad, but then we start to think, well, okay, if, if these are the motivations we want to trigger here to get people onto public transport or pay their ride or drive safely or not drive in the bus lane or all these different, huge numbers of behavioral challenges that we actually have within, within transit and transport. Um, let's start broad, but then let's start to focus down on what then the local or the cultural context is. So, so it is tailored in that way. But the order is really important. We don't start with a mosaic or a specific group to begin with and actually go, well, this group is different to this group because of X, Y, and Z. Generally speaking, they're, they're probably going to be a lot more similar than they are different. And I think that's a big mistake that we often make when we try to change behavior. We don't so, so a lot of your, your insights have been talking about, in effect, carrots. But say, culturally, this is now a, a supplementary question, sorry. Uh, culturally, when you go to China, they're using an awful lot of sticks. Mm. So if you're, uh, I'm using inverted commas here with my fingers, if you're a jaywalker mm -hmm. in China with facial recognition, then that goes up at a big screen and there's, you know, loud fanfare saying, you know, so-and-so of this province 
is it's crossing against the lights, you shouldn't do this, you might get a fine to your, to your mobile phone. So there's also a lot of sticks that are also being used in other cultures. So are you, would you steer away from that in, in some cultures and not others? Do you think it works in China, it wouldn't work here? If you suddenly had, you were crossing, uh, you went, a cyclist went through a red light, for yeah. instance. Well, or a motorist well, went through yeah. a red light, if that then became a shaming thing. Yeah. Well, you're exactly right about that. And, and, and so another thing that we can overlay there is, is that, you know, every culture, every country has uh, what um, Hofstede would call its power index, uh, which is essentially um, a society's readiness to be comfortable with power being concentrated into a small number of individuals. And so in those instances, so for example, China has a high power index ratio. Um, you know, uh, a lot of countries in South America do as well. Um, and so in those cultures, I think that idea of, of sticks and shaming uh, and, you know, a very explicit finger pointing um, are probably more normative than they would be in perhaps, uh, you know, cultures such as our own. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I steer away from that. I, 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 I'm not convinced that it's a, an especially effective um, mechanism. It, it, it's largely legislative in that way. It's kind of it's, it's like saying, you know, um, rather than designing systems where people behave in the way that you know they're kind of largely ingrained to to behave in, we're largely putting legislation in place. You know, we're fining people. You know. This is not a replacement for fines, by the way, um, or or for law. But sometimes fines can be. You know, um, challenging. You know, back to the daycare center example. You know, sometimes legislation is um, well lengthy to agree upon. Um, you know, it takes a lot of time. Uh, sometimes the behavioral approach provides the quicker win. Um, so it's not that one should replace the other. It's it's working out what the right combination of things are. And and I think that's where you know there's a broader message here from you know what I would regard as authentic behavioral scientists is that, you know, it's not enough just to read a book. You know, you read Influence or Nudge or Yes or Thinking Fast and Slow and you think, right, I'm, I'm now a behavioral scientist. No, that, you know, that, 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 that gives you a set of techniques that you might be able to try out. But actually until you really get under the skin of an environment and actually understand those different nuances. But you start from that broad level. I would just li uh, like to add something about cultural differences. Uh, uh, I'm not an expert, but uh, what I think is important is if you take a country like France, uh, you could have massive difference, and it is not north against south. Uh, if you look at the northern part of France in two areas that I will not mention, you have a difference of fair evasion that is uh, 30%. Okay? So it's two northern parts. So you would imagine all oh, the no southern, they are laid back and etc. And the northern, they are really strict and, and etc. No, two northern networks, difference of 30 points of fair evasion. What we, and, and we learn from that. So we are, in, in what we are doing, you have behavior and you have science. So there are no preconceived ideas. There is just a diagnosis, a perception survey, data analysis, test, comparing, we may think, and that is a, uh, an area that we need to confirm, that the relationship that you have with your common goods, the relationship that you have with community, 
and a sense of belonging to the community may be something that is driving a little more, uh, how can I say, uh, reasonable attitude regarding ferry vision, because you have this, this sense of belonging to a community. So in fact, we are doing an investigation in one of the network that has the lowest fair evasion of Transdev in the northern part of France to learn from this lowest fair evasion what is special to the community, what's going on there. So you see, that that's the adventure and the journey that we have to learn, is that we know that we are a world where we need to have process, we need to have principles, we need to have a key performance indicators, but what we are learning also is that in some areas, even though you do everything correct from what the process and the engineering world teach you, there are some exceptions. And this is why this is a wonderful opportunity to learn from behavioral science. Thanks to Steve Martin and Marielle Villamo there. Instead of the usual show ending, urging you to get out there and ride, I'm instead going to end with a Velo City podcast promo I recorded with my fellow journalist, Laura Laker. Hi there, I'm Colton Reed, and I'm talking to you from Newcastle while I'm riding my bike, testing out a new on the move microphone. Hi there, I'm Laura Laker, and I'm here in London recording as I'm cycling along beside Hyde Park in London. Later this month, we'll be together in Dublin for Velo City, and we'll be doing nearly live virtual Velo City daily podcasts from the conference interviewing loads of interesting people. Some of whom actually backed the project on Kickstarter. Don't worry if you miss the crowdfunder, you can still get pre-order podcasts by going to www.virtualvelo-city.com. That's where the daily podcasts will be hosted. Access to those cost £16. And you can pay by PayPal or credit card on Virtual Velo dash city.com Backers will also get tons of behind-the-scenes stuff from us both. See you in Dublin, Laura. And that's somebody beeping me from behind. Thank you very much. <laughs>